Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Did you know? Kingdom Hearts owes its existence to a string of chance events. The first of these events was when Final Fantasy developer Tetsuya Nomura overheard a conversation between Square Enix executive Shinji Hashimoto and Final Fantasy creator Hironobu Sakaguchi. Nomura heard them saying something along the lines of, Mickey Mouse would have been great, but we can't use him, and stated that he was interested in working on whatever this mystery project was. In an interview with Nintendo CEO Satoru Iwata, Nomura explained why he was interested in the project, saying that while he was working on on Final Fantasy VII, Super Mario 64 was released for the Nintendo 64. Super Mario 64's fully three-dimensional environments and the freedom you had to explore these environments had a huge impact on him. When Nomura told his colleagues that he wanted to make a game like Super Mario 64, they said, but Mario's already a world-famous character. It would be impossible to start from scratch with an all-new character. But Nomura felt that Disney had some of the few characters that could rival Mario in popularity and jumped at the chance to realize his ideas when he overheard Hashimoto and Sakaguchi talking. They later both agreed to give Nomura a chance to direct the project. The second chance event was when Hashimoto unwittingly stepped into an elevator with a Disney executive. At the time, Disney and Square both worked in the same building, so the elevator ride gave Hashimoto the chance to pitch the idea of a collaboration directly to Disney. They quickly came up with the idea of a crossover as a vague production concept, and Hironobu Sakaguchi later agreed to using Final Fantasy and Disney characters together. At the start of development, Disney wanted Donald Duck to be the game's protagonist, while Square wanted Mickey Mouse. Nomura felt that neither would work well, and wanted to develop an original character based on Disney's iconic style. So in the end, Sora was created. Sora was originally going to wield a chainsaw sword instead of a keyblade, and his design was going to resemble that of a lion. Sora's final design, however, had yellow shoes, red shorts, and white gloves, all inspired by Mickey Mouse. The game's story was also originally going to be a much simpler, Disney-styled story, but it was altered to appeal more to Final Fantasy fans. Two months before Kingdom Hearts released, Square held a promotional contest for the game exclusively in the US. The winner of the contest would have their name used in the game. The lucky winner was New Yorker Kurt Zisa, and his name would be used for the game's six-armed hidden boss of the same name. Final Fantasy X's Riku was originally going to play a major role in the first Kingdom Hearts game. She was going to be a part of Leon's group in Traverse Town and help Sora throughout the game. She was removed because her name was too similar to the character Riku, and she was ultimately replaced with Yuffie. She did, however, later appear with the rest of the Gullwings in Kingdom Hearts 2. In an interview with Tetsuya Nomura, he revealed that Cloud's appearance in Kingdom Hearts was inspired by Final Fantasy VII's Vincent Valentine, saying, This time, in this setting, Cloud is leaning towards the dark side, and I wanted to make him a bit more demon-like. And, since Vincent was exactly that kind of design, I just added it in. Although, I would have liked to put Vincent in the game, too. The Kingdom Hearts series also has an abundance of unused levels. Disney Castle was 
was planned to be playable in the first Kingdom Hearts game, for example. The area was shown in early trailers for the game, but the level was cut from the final version. That said, the castle can still be accessed using cheat codes. The Lion King's Pride Lands were also planned to be a playable level, with Sora turning into a lion to fight. This idea was scrapped as fighting and walking with a four-legged body required additional programming and the team didn't have enough time to implement the idea. However, the idea was later used in Kingdom Hearts 2. The Tarzan level Deep Jungle, which appeared in the first Kingdom Hearts, didn't appear in Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories and its remake. The reason for its absence was that Disney and Square couldn't get the rights to use the Tarzan concept or characters from their copyright holders. The estate of Edgar Rice Burroughs. A world based on the Jungle Book can also be found in the code for Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep. The world can still be played through cheat codes, though it's unfinished. It's not known why this level was scrapped, though. The enemy, Assault Rider, was meant to appear in the first Kingdom Hearts game, but it didn't seem to fit in with any of the game's worlds, so it was removed and later used in Kingdom Hearts 2 instead. The reoccurring Final Fantasy summon, Bahamut, was planned to be a usable summon in Kingdom Hearts. It would have been used by Sora, but it was removed from the final version of the game. Searching through the game's data reveals a Bahamut's summon option does exist. When the option is hacked back in the game and selected, however, the game will simply crash. Toy Story's Woody and Buzz Lightyear were set to appear as summons in Kingdom Hearts 2 Final Mix, but were removed for unknown reasons. The untextured models can still be found in the game's code, amongst the game's other summons. Pleakley from the film Lilo and Stitch was originally going to be present in the Deep Space level in Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep. He was removed for unknown reasons, but a character model can still be found within the game's code. Originally, the Kingdom Hearts 2 final boss, Xemnas, was going to utilize two other gigantic forms, although it's not known why these forms were removed. Of course, it's evident to see that there are many pieces of cut content and lost information within the Kingdom Hearts series, but the biggest loss by far was the loss of all original data and assets for the first Kingdom Hearts game. This is the reason Kingdom Hearts HD 1.5 Remix is reported to have been made from the ground up. One last interesting piece on Kingdom Hearts is that the actress Catherine Beaumont, who voiced Alice in Disney's Alice in Wonderland at the age of 13 reprised her role as Alice in Kingdom Hearts over 50 years later at the age of 64. Of course! I've done absolutely nothing wrong. Did you know? Several teasers and trailers from the Kingdom Hearts series have featured scenes that were either heavily altered or unused in the final products. The very first trailer for Kingdom Hearts features a segment with Riku standing atop Big Ben in Neverland, not seen in the final game. Additionally, Donald Duck and Goofy wear their traditional outfits, rather than the Final Fantasy-inspired costumes they were given in-game. The first trailer for Kingdom Hearts 2 also included several tweaked scenes. Most notably is that Sora, Donald, Goofy, and five members of Organization 13 are seen in the Hollow Bastion level from the first game, and there's a comedic scene where Donald freezes himself with magic. Interestingly, Roxas's face was also obscured for the entirety of the trailer and other early promotional materials for reasons that aren't entirely clear. A partially hidden end-of-game teaser for Kingdom Hearts 2 was included in the first game, titled Another Side, Another Story. The teaser featured pre-rendered CG animation created by some of the same team that animated the Final Fantasy VII spin-off, Advent Children. Though conceived as a non-canon concept trailer showcasing unconnected ideas for a sequel, several aspects of the trailer did eventually make their way into official parts of the series. The main sequence from the video was briefly retold in Kingdom Hearts 2 through a flashback, and was an integral part of the spin-off 358 over two days. Additionally, the seemingly random quotes that appear throughout the trailer were added in the Kingdom Hearts 2 script by writer Kazushige Nojima after an official story had been crafted. Kingdom Hearts 2 featured a similar pre-rendered trailer titled Birth by Sleep, which teased a climax 
climactic scene from the game of the same name. Despite first being released in Japan, the international versions of Kingdom Hearts actually feature additional content. New music and battles against Kurtziza, the Phantom, and Sephiroth weren't in the initial Japanese game, and wouldn't be included until the release of a special Japan-exclusive version titled Kingdom Hearts Final Mix. This upgraded rendition also contained even more new content, including cutscenes, enemies, weapons, and a secret boss battle against a powerful and mysterious hooded man. Kingdom Hearts 2's Final Mix similarly featured new content, including an entirely new battle between Sora and Roxas in the world that never was, which originally occurred as just a cutscene. Additionally, optional boss battles with all the deceased members of Organization 13 were added, a feature series developer Tetsuya Nomura and his team wished to include from the very beginning. They originally planned for these battles to take place in the Underworld's Colosseum as a way to rationalize bringing back dead characters, but they had to be cut due to time constraints. Interestingly, while all of the final mix versions were originally Japan exclusive, each of them featured their respective game's English dubs. Though the original reasoning behind this decision is unknown, according to series creator Tetsuya Nomura, the later Final Mix games continue the tradition because, compared to Final Fantasy, there's a high demand for the English version of Kingdom Hearts. I assume it's because there are many fans who came in through Final Mix, so it felt quite weird to play Kingdom Hearts 2 in Japanese when they played the previous games in English. Thanks to Final Mix selling very well, many fans think the English voices are meant for Kingdom Hearts. Several parts of Kingdom Hearts were censored while being localized for the North American market. Green blood originally squirted out when one of the heads of the Hydra was cut off during its boss battle, but the American version instead features purple smoke billowing out. After using an incredibly powerful attack near the climax of the game, Axel is no longer shown to be on fire in the North American version, and the crosshairs shown on Zigbar's weapon during his boss battle were changed so they no longer resembled a real gun's scope. Several aspects of Port Royal, the world based on the Pirates of the Caribbean films, were also censored. The guns held by enemy pirates were changed to crossbows in the North American release, despite still producing a gunshot when fired. These pirate enemies also no longer catch on fire when hit with fire-based magic attacks. The cutscene where Jack Sparrow was stabbed by Captain Barbosa was tweaked and no longer features a sword sticking out of Jack. And the scene where Will Turner threatens to shoot himself while nearly identical to the films in the Japanese release was reanimated for the international market. In the March 2007 issue of Electronic Gaming Monthly, a new Wii-exclusive game called Mushroom Kingdom Hearts was teased. The magazine claimed that this new title in the franchise would include both new and returning Disney and Kingdom Hearts characters alongside Nintendo characters and worlds. The article was complete with new artwork of a redesigned Mario holding a Keyblade alongside Sora and Mickey Mouse, and a logo featuring the iconic Super Mario Mushroom with the Kingdom Hearts crown symbol on its head. This game, of course, never materialized. EGM later confirmed that this article was their annual April Fool's joke, and that the Mario render was just Photoshop Super Mario Sunshine artwork. There have been other real projects in the Kingdom Hearts franchise that were put into production but never saw release. After the success of the first Kingdom Hearts game in the early 2000s, Disney and Square put an animated adaptation into production. The two companies hired storyboard artist Seth Kearsley of Disney's television animation division to write and direct an animatic pilot for a potential series, and he was given complete creative freedom over the project. After playing through the first game, Kearsley constructed his own interpretation of Sora's journey to Agrabah. He was given access to the Disney Animation Archive, and intended to use the actual background from the Aladdin animated feature to both save money and give the series an authentic feel. Kearsley later uploaded several storyboards from the pilot to the internet in 2013, stating that despite testing extremely well with audiences, the show wasn't picked up because it was a vastly different interpretation of the Kingdom Hearts story. Disney and Square had already agreed to make more games and didn't want the 
the series to conflict with any future plot points. Another Kingdom Hearts spin-off that never saw the light of day was an iOS and Android title called Kingdom Hearts Fragmented Keys. This game was in development at Disney Interactive subsidiary Wideload Games before its cancellation in early 2014. The title would have featured several Kingdom Hearts characters traveling to numerous Disney universes through a hub world and fighting evil along the way. Concept art for several Disney-themed worlds intended for Fragmented Keys was later leaked online, and included places based on Tron, Lilo and Stitch, Wreck-It Ralph, Tangled, Frozen, and most interestingly, the Star Wars Clone Wars cartoon. Though it's unknown if any of this art made it past the conceptual phase, series creator Tetsuya Nomura is an admitted fan of Star Wars and has mentioned in the past that he would jump at the chance to include the franchise in Kingdom Hearts. Did you know? Sly Cooper is said to be based on a character from Sucker Punch Studios' previous game, Rocket Robot on Wheels, which released on the Nintendo 64 in 1999. The game's antagonist was called Jojo, who, like Sly, is a hat-wearing raccoon. The character Whoopi Walrus may have also been the basis for Jim McSweeney from Sly 3, as both are large purple walruses. Sucker Punch pay homage to Rocket throughout the Sly series. During a cutscene Sly Cooper and the Thievius Raccooners, for instance, Murray can be seen wearing a hat based on Rocket's hub-level Whoopi World. In Sly 2, Band of Thieves, a gravestone can be found in the A Tangled Web episode that reads R.I.P. Rocket. Jojo can also be found at the end of the same level, floating above a crypt. The basic concept behind Sly Cooper was to make an action game where the main character was a thief. A thief proved to be a natural fit for an action platformer as it allowed Sucker Punch to make the types of risky terrain and dramatic situations a robber would find themselves in. Sly was designed to fit this mold, with the raccoon's banded eyes mirroring a burglar's mask. His original design was a lot stockier, more closely resembling an actual raccoon, but then Sly became lankier over time and his animations became more expressive as a result. Early builds of the game showed Sly standing up straight as he ran, which slowly developed into a sneakier crouch. Sly's cane was designed not as a hook, but as a question mark, giving him the air of a raccoon of mystery. It was also a hook planned to transform into different tools to aid Sly, such as a spray that could reveal hidden barriers. Sly was intended to make the player feel like a romanticized, idealized version of a thief. To reflect this, the team had a golden rule that they referenced when making decisions about the game's creative direction. Whatever is thiefier, wins. Checkpoints and coins originally used Sly's logo, however, the team eventually decided again against this, as it would feel less like the player was breaking into an enemy stronghold if there was sly iconography littered about the stages. These coins were later changed to dancing green bills that resembled American dollars, but in the end these were dropped too. They were altered due to localization concerns. It was thought that dollars would be easily recognizable to American audiences, but less so in other parts of the world. Subsequent releases of the game also saw changes. The boss battle with Ms. Ruby takes the form of a rhythm-based minigame, however this boss is considerably more difficult in the sly collection, as the music is remixed and out of sync with her actions. As work began on Sly 2, Sucker Punch decided upon a one-sentence project description that would inform the game's story and level design. This sentence was, Sly and the gang work together to pull off a big string of heists. The game took heavy inspiration from classic heist films like Ocean's Eleven and The Italian Job, and to make it feel more like Sly's gang were working as a team, all three members became playable and were each given their own role in the capers. The game's levels were designed through a collaborative back and forth between the art department and the level designers. Architecture was used to guide the player through the level, so shots were set up to focus on architecture before any gameplay was designed. This way artists would know where to place important buildings and structures. The first level the team made took eight months to complete. While the level didn't make it into the final game, it became the conceptual building block for the rest of Sly 2 stages. Little is known about this lost scenario, but it was set to have taken place in Monaco and would have seen Bentley crashing a stolen boat into a casino.
the Sly 3 level Bloodbath Bay, there's a poster that says Dev and Karin Wedding August 5th. This is a nod to two developers at Sucker Punch, Dev Maiden and Karin Yamagiwa Maiden, who got married during the creation of the game. Sly 3 was Sucker Punch's last entry into the series. The company wanted to be focused on a single project at a time, and the transition from the PlayStation 2 to the PlayStation 3 presented the perfect opportunity to transition into a new project. However, there's still evidence to suggest that Sucker Punch were once working on a fourth title, planned for release on the PS3. The game was reportedly planned to be shown at E3 2007, and was said to feature connectivity with a PS PSP Sly title, which was similarly ill-fated. Concept art exists for the PSP game drawn by prolific comic and game artist Joe Madureira. The art showed Sly in different period costumes, suggesting the game was to have explored his ancestry, just like the eventually released Thieves in Time. The art also showed a shadowy, evil-looking version of Sly. The fourth instalment ultimately found itself in the hands of Sanzaru Games, who were responsible for porting all the three original games to the PS3 in the Sly collection. Keeping this new game true to the original trilogy was a top priority for the fresh developers. They wanted the game to look exactly how a fan would imagine the series would look in HD. And speaking of fans, Sony asked the fans to design some of the treasures that Sly would find throughout the title. This was done in the form of a competition, and winning entries were included in the finished game. Concept art for Thieves in Time shows that Miss Decibel and Penelope weren't in the initial roster of bosses. In their place are a lizard and an elephant that appear to have been combined into Miss Decibel, and a mole with a large drill. Concept art also exists for a level set in ancient Egypt, and although the level itself was cut, the location was reused in the game's secret ending. The game also makes several allusions to other series. The treasure Lutrela Nivadensis is Daxter from Jack and Daxter, and medieval metal man is Clank from Ratchet and Clank. Collecting all of the masks in the game will unlock Cole's amp weapon from Infamous, the series that Sucker Punch went on to develop. The achievements Ancient Warfare 3 and Navigate Like Drake are references to Modern Warfare 3 and Uncharted respectively. Inspector Carmelita Fox also shares similarities to the Batman character Rene Montoya. Both are strong-willed police women with Spanish names who have a complicated opinion of the protagonist. Carmelita's middle name is even Montoya, strengthening the connection. Rene Montoya was created from the 1990s cartoon series Batman the Animated Series, which was a source of inspiration for the Sly Cooper series. Carmelita is also shown to be a fan of Neil Damon, a nod to the singer Neil Diamond. This may even be a reference to one of Diamond's songs, Carmelita's Eyes. In another musical reference, the Guru of the Stone takes a group of rock stars as his pupils at the end of Sly 3. The rock stars in question bring him unwanted media attention and heavily resemble the Beatles. This is referencing Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, a meditation practitioner who became a guru to the Beatles. Did you know? The Jack and Daxter franchise has won many awards and made its way into the Guinness Book of World Records a total of seven times. The series' records include most successful single format platform series, largest number of cutscenes in a platform game, and first seamless 3D world in a console game, the honor of which belongs to the first Jack and Daxter game. Work began for Jack 1 in January 1999 under the codename Project Y and was developed by two people while the rest of Naughty Dog worked on Crash Team Racing. A game like Jack and Daxter seemed impossible to implement on the original PlayStation, which is why Naughty Dog kept things simple in earlier games like Crash Bandicoot. However, the team realized a fully 3D adventure could be done after they saw Super Mario 64. An issue with games like Mario 64 was that they were very segmented, so one of Naughty Dog's biggest desires for Jack and Daxter was to immerse the player in a large, expansive, singular world. This was made possible with the help of a programming language called Goal. Created by Naughty Dog co-founder Andy Gavin, Goal helped make the game's world seamless with 
with no load times between levels. The smooth animations and colorful visuals, not to mention all the game's runtime code, are all byproducts of Goal. There were some issues with it though. Since only Gavin himself could understand the language, all changes made to it had to come directly from him. It also took over a year to develop the compiler, leaving programmers with missing features. Engineering for Jack 1 took 20 months and they were so busy working on the game's technology, they didn't get to gameplay coding until fairly late in the project. The designers were forced to create enemies and settings for the game without knowing if they would work properly. But according to programmer Stephen White, had the designers not been so good at their jobs, the project could have been a disaster. The characters also had lengthy development cycles. Concept artist for Crash and Spyro, Charles Zambillis, was asked to create the game's protagonists. For Jack, Naughty Dog wasn't sure what they wanted, so Zambillis came up with several ideas from many different approaches. The first drawings of Jack show him with a wolf-like appearance. Sony of Japan wanted to go down this route with Jack initially, though Naughty Dog wasn't too keen on the design. Eventually, Jack got a more humanoid design based in royalty and heroism. He was later made more animalistic again, with martial arts and Native American themes attached to him. Artist Bob Raffay, a student of Zambillis, tweaked Jack and made his final iteration. According to Naughty Dog co-founder Jason Rubin, Jack's final design is inspired by comic book artist Joe Moderera and his work on Battle Chasers. The game's logo also draws parallels to the Battle Chasers logo. Lastly, Jack's name is of South African origin and was originally suggested by artist Josh Schur. Daxter started off looking very rodent-like, but his design later took on more of a monkey look for a period of time. This idea was scrapped, and Zambillis eventually came up with the design of Daxter we know today. Daxter's design netted Naughty Dog the award for Best Original Character at the 2002 Game Developers Conference, being the first award they ever received for a character. When it came to animating Daxter, animator John Kim was inspired by the movements of the monkey Abu from Disney's Aladdin. By the time Jack 1 was released, Jack 2's development was well underway. Jack 2 took a more mature direction in style and tone, as that's where they felt the industry was going. Games were getting more serious, and their demographic was getting older, so Naughty Dog followed suit. One major influence on the game was the Grand Theft Auto series, along with Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Some team members were opposed to the changes made, though one decision everyone liked was giving Jack a voice. Jack was originally mute, as the team thought a silent protagonist would help immerse the player in the game, similar to the likes of Crash Bandicoot. The Crash and Jack series share another connection through an easter egg. The Venus flytrap enemy from Crash Bandicoot can be seen in Samos's hut in Jack 1, and there are many other secrets to be found in the Jack series. In the PS2 version of Jack 3, you can find a lone box atop a building in the Haven City port. Looking inside reveals a picture of the Naughty Dog development team. Another easter egg can be found in Naughty Dog's Uncharted series. The strange relic treasure found in each game resembles the Jack series' precursor orbs. The precursor text found on the top and bottom rows of the orbs reads out Naughty Dog and Madman when translated. Jack 1's precursor blockers have text on them too. When translated, they read out, you are getting really dizzy. In Jack 2 and 3, there are signs throughout the game that read out the name Morgan. Morgan was the name of Jason Rubin's Black Labrador, who was a big part of the Naughty Dog atmosphere. She passed away at age 13 during Jack 2's development, and the game is in memory of her. In Jack 3's Freedom HQ, precursor text on the computer screens read out the lines, Morgan, I miss you. I will always love you. There will never be another. 13 years hard time. Good dog. Morgan is still missed after a year has passed. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. There have been a few attempts at continuing the Jack series. The Lost Frontier was initially being worked on by a team at Naughty Dog for the PSP while another team worked on the PS3. However, the transition from the PS2 to the then new systems wasn't a smooth one. Most of their time was spent learning the hardware and little progress was made. Many employees quit out of frustration and it seemed like the company was on the verge of death. To keep the studio afloat, the two teams became one and handed over the Lost Frontier to another developer, putting their whole team to work on the first Uncharted game. This wasn't the last time they tried making a Jack game though. The success of Uncharted 2 led the team to splitting into two once more. The new team was led by Bruce Straley and Neil Druckmann and they explored the idea of creating a new Jack and Daxter game but the idea was ultimately dropped. Neil Druckmann had said, we were questioning, are we doing this for marketing reasons and naming something Jack and Daxter when it's not really Jack and Daxter or are we really passionate about it? And the answer was, we felt it was more for marketing. We felt like we weren't doing service to what fans of this franchise really liked. Even if the reinvented Daxter is pretty damn good looking. When they told their supervisors about the issue, they said they were allowed to tell whatever story they wanted, which led to The Last of Us being made. The Last of Us has a few cameos and references to Jack and Daxter in areas throughout the game. More concept art for Jack 4 was revealed in Naughty Dog's 30th anniversary art book, as well as in July of 2015, showing backgrounds, more ideas for Daxter, and a very photorealistic Jack. Did you know? Ratchet & Clank was Insomniac Games' first title released for the PS2, but it wasn't their first idea for the console. Shortly after parting ways with the Spyro series, Insomniac started work on an action-adventure RPG codenamed I-5, aka Girl with a Stick. The game took inspiration from both the Zelda and Tomb Raider series, but was cancelled after about a year of work for apparently not being that fun. This left the team with just a few months to create a new concept. They decided to make a game set in an alien galaxy centered around crazy weapons and gadgets, and thus, development on Ratchet & Clank began. When going through the designs for the main characters, their initial concepts were much different than the ones we know today. Ratchet started out as a reptilian-looking creature, barely resembling the final product aside from the pilot headgear and oversized hands. This original design was inspired by the grappling maneuver in Bionic Commando. Ratchet's design became more cat-like as time went by, though. When shown the final design, Sony of Japan suggested Ratchet have stripes on his ears, to which the team was initially against. Insomniac CEO Ted Price even said they'd do it over my dead body, but they ended up liking the suggestion in the end. Clank's design took more time to finalize. One idea for the character was for him to be multiple robots used to power up Ratchet's various gadgets and backpack. This, however, was deemed all too confusing for players to handle, and was a visual mess. Clank was later refined to simply be the backpack itself. Clank also got his large round eyes from an earlier design where he was a robotic lizard, which may have accompanied Ratchet's original reptilian design. Ratchet and Clank released in 2002 and was a huge success for Insomniac, paving the way for many more games down the road. And if there's one thing the series is known for, it's the clever usage of innuendos, especially in the game's titles. The innuendos didn't sit well with everyone, however, and all Ratchet and Clank games for the PS2 had their names changed for PAL regions. Going Commando, Up Your Arsenal, and Deadlocked were changed to Locked and Loaded, Ratchet and Clank 3, and Ratchet Gladiator, respectively. All for one for the PS3 had the working title multiple organisms, bros before foes, and friends with benefits out of a list of over 100 possible titles.
titles. Insomniac even thought about using the name Foreplay, but this name was changed as they didn't want to scare off parents from buying the game for their kids. Similarly, A Crack in Time was originally going to be titled Clock Blockers, but unsurprisingly, the name was also shot down. The latest game in the franchise, Into the Nexus, went under the working title Into the Nether Regions. Aside from double entendres, Ratchet and Clank is also known for its skill points. That said, the skill points didn't make their debut in the Ratchet series, they're actually a carryover from the Spyro games, specifically Spyro 2 and 3. The final skill point in the first Ratchet game is called Going Commando, which at the time of Ratchet and Clank's release may have been an allusion to the game's then in development sequel. Tools of Destruction has a skill point with the name, no, up your arsenal, referencing the name of the third Ratchet game. Other names for skill points include Gotta Catch Em All, referencing the Pokemon slogan, and You Can Break a Snow Dan, a reference to Insomniac Games employee Dan Johnson. As an inside joke of sorts, Insomniac has hidden away a reference to Dan in nearly every one of their games beginning with Spyro 2. In the first Ratchet and Clank, Dan's face can be seen on the computer monitors in the landing area of the Blark Station, and on Planet Pokitaru, his face can be seen on every starfish on the beach. Most other easter eggs of Dan in the Ratchet series are comprised of unlockable skins and his face on a snowman in Going Commando and Up Your Arsenal. Jokingly dubbed the Snow Dan. Sadly, Dan passed away in 2006 during the development of Ratchet and Clank Size Matters, and it, along with Tools of Destruction, are dedicated to his memory. The Museum of Intergalactic History from Into the Nexus has a statue of Dan found off the beaten path, with its entry saying he made techno music, raised cats, and knew the secrets to enjoying life. Insomniac Games have made many good partners in the gaming industry, though arguably their closest relationship is with fellow PlayStation developer Naughty Dog. When the two companies worked on Crash Bandicoot and Spyro, they did so in the same building in the same room at Universal Studios, literally side by side. To this day, the developers make games very similar in gameplay style and aesthetic, and this is especially evident with Ratchet and & Clank and Naughty Dog's own Jack & Daxter franchise. Both series have made several shoutouts to each other's games, especially during the PS2 era. Jack 2's Haven City has a billboard featuring Ratchet and Clank from Going Commando, and Going Commando has a poster of Jack and Daxter in Clank's apartment and a billboard in Algon City. Algon City even has a mission which, upon completing, has Clank mimic one of Daxter's victory animations from the first Jack and Daxter, accompanied with the same music track as well. In Jack X Combat Racing, Ratchet is an unlockable driver if save data for Ratchet Deadlocked is found on the PS2 memory card. Ratchet Deadlocked somewhat returns the favor by having having a Jack skin available for player 2 to use. Deadlocked also has a small shout out to Insomniac's time with Spyro the Dragon. The story of Deadlocked has Ratchet and Clank kidnapped and forced to partake in a series of death matches along with other kidnapped contestants throughout the galaxy. On the game's Rankometer leaderboard, the name Agent Zero can be seen, which is likely referencing the character of the same name from Spyro 2. By the end of Deadlocked, his status on the Rankometer is listed as active, implying that he managed to survive. Did you know? One of the earliest inspirations for Okami was Capcom's remake of Resident Evil. Released in 2002 and originally developed for the Nintendo GameCube, Resident Evil utilized the new console's graphical capabilities and stunned critics with its atmospheric visuals. As Hideki Kamiya, Okami's director, recalled, The Resident Evil team was the first team I worked with after I joined Capcom. When it was remade for the GameCube, I was very impressed by how far the visuals had come and their ability to depict realistic situations. I thought if we 
we had enough institutional knowledge at Capcom to make a realistic horror game like Resident Evil, then I also wanted to try using this technology to make a world that was glistening and beautiful. That feeling was at the root of Okami. Kamiya explained that living and working in an urban environment had awakened a sense of hometown nostalgia in him, and he longed for the peaceful Japanese countryside. In order to satisfy his yearning for a rural setting, he made nature a focal point for his new project. Kamiya originally wanted Okami to have a realistic art style. In fact, completing the game unlocks a short clip that shows players the original artistic direction of the project. However, the concept had to be scrapped as the team couldn't achieve the level of detail they wanted to with the PlayStation 2's hardware limitations. According to Okami's producer, Atsushi Inaba, an art designer showed the development team a style inspired by sumie, or Japanese black ink paintings. The team loved the concept and decided to base the game's aesthetics on that. While developing the game in this new art style, Inaba wanted players to get involved with the artwork, rather than passively observing it. This led to the implementation of the Celestial Brush mechanic. As Amaterasu doesn't have a place to store an actual brush, the team decided to use her tail to draw instead. The developers wanted players to have fun with the Celestial Brush in the game's world, rather than run straight through the story. As a result, using the brush techniques on the game's environments can have some humorous effects. For example, power slashing the scroll in Susano's house will reveal a hidden picture of Kushi, and using whirlwind near characters and animals can cause them to get caught in the cyclone. The realistic art style wasn't the only thing that didn't make it into the final game. Early concept art showed Amaterasu transforming into a dolphin while swimming, and into a falcon while leaping from high edges. The eight canine warrior characters were originally planned to be human. Due to difficulties designing their human forms, Okami's lead character designer, Kenichiro Yoshimura, put the eight canine warriors aside to focus on other things. By the time Yoshimura returned to work on their designs, the scenario writers had already included the warriors in the game as actual dogs. Though shocked, Yoshimura went along with the idea. The character Isun, meanwhile, wasn't even planned to be in the game. According to Kamiya, the team knew Amaterasu needed a guide to compensate for her lack of dialogue. They eventually settled on someone tiny, no bigger than a flea, foul-mouthed and lecherous, which became the basis for Isun. Inspiration for many of the game's characters and plot points draw heavily from Shinto mythology and Japanese folklore. Isun is based on the Japanese folktale of Isun Boshi, in which an elderly couple wish for a child. Their wish is granted, but the child only grows to be one inch tall. The child then leaves his family to find his place in the world, and is given a needle for a sword, which resembles the weapon Isun uses in Okami. In the folktale, Isun defeats an Oni and acquires Ushide's mallet, a magic hammer which he uses to grow to normal size. This mallet appears in Okami as the lucky mallet item, however the mallet is used to shrink Amaterasu to Isun's size rather than grow Isun. The characters Amaterasu and Suzuno are based on the Shinto deity siblings of the same names, and the first arc of the game closely follows the Shinto legend of Yamato no Orochi's demise. In the legend, Suzuno meets a grieving elderly couple who reveal that the eight-headed serpent, Yamato no Orochi, has been devouring one of their daughters every year for the past seven years. Their only remaining daughter is Kushinata Hime, but Orochi is coming for her as well. Suzuno promises to kill the beast, in return for Kushi's hand in 
in marriage and transforms her into a comb that he places in his hair. The game's Kushi's hair is distinctly comb-shaped. Suzuno and the couple then brew eight separate servings of sake for the eight heads of Orochi. When Orochi arrives, all eight heads intoxicate themselves, and the monster falls unconscious. As the game's boss fight against Orochi shows, Suzuno then chops the monster to bits, slaying it once and for all. Capcom localization producer David Chrislip explained that the game was firmly based in Japanese culture. This meant that Capcom could have gone in two very different directions with the western localization of the characters' names. They could have either completely westernized them, or they could have risked alienating the western audience by keeping the names 100% Japanese. The team instead tried to compensate by shortening some character names. For example, the sake brewer Kushinata was shortened to Kushi, and the Kamiki village boy Mushikai was shortened to Mushi. The localization process was special up due to the game's lack of proper voice acting. As Chrislip explained in an interview with 1UP, it actually is real people talking and then scrambled. If they needed a certain emotion, they'd say, speak as if you were angry, and then they'd scramble it and play it backwards or something. Sighing and coughing is quite clearly someone really sighing or coughing. Then they just digitize it. Chrislip felt the mumbling aspect fit the fantasy setting of the game and left that as is. Capcom referenced several of their previous games with an Okami. When making your cherry cakes at night, Mrs. Orange will perform the raging demon attack used by Akuma in the Street Fighter series. When the player talks to Tom of the Pyrotechnist in Shinshu Field, he will unveil his new firework, the Midnight Wonder Boy, alluding to Beautiful Joe's Midnight Thunder Boy. In the same Shinshu Field, the player can purchase a technique from Onigiri's Sensei's Dojo. Upon doing so, Onigiri will act out a transformation sequence similar to that of Joe's. Another, more direct reference can be found in the Fashion Girl's side quest in Seon City. After completing a few designs for her, the fashion girl will ask for a henshin design. Drawing a V on Mr. Cheek's kimono and fulfilling the fashion girl's request will trigger her to recite Joe's catchphrase, saying, Look doggy, isn't it beautiful? This is my latest design, the henshin pattern. Henshin a go-go, baby. Another one of Joe's quotes appears just before Amaterasu's second fight with Waka, when he says, just go for it. In Amaterasu's first fight with Waka, he'll say, let's rock baby instead. A reference to Dante from Devil May Cry. In 2007, a full year after Okami's initial PlayStation 2 release, the American development team Ready at Dawn began porting the game to the Wii. DDA Malanfan, Ready at Dawn's president at the time, claimed that the Wii version would be an exact port of the original game. The process proved to be rather difficult, however, as Capcom dissolved Okami's original development studio a mere two months after the initial PlayStation 2 release, and much of the work of the original game was missing as a result. Although many assets were provided by Capcom, portions of the game had to be re created from scratch by Ready at Dawn. Despite claims that no content would be cut during the port, the original Clover Studios credits were missing from the Wii version. Kamiya stated, I find it extremely regrettable that the Amoei that went into the staff role is gone from the game as well. Of course, these weren't just my Amoei. They were the Amoei of everyone who worked on the project. Put together in a moment of bliss, held out just for those who completed the journey. It was a special staff role for a special moment, and now it's gone. All of it. It's incredibly disappointing and sad. Controversy also arose over the Wii port's North American box art. On the new cover, the watermark for the gaming publication IGN could be seen near Matarasu's mouth. This seemed to indicate that, rather than taking source material from their own archives, Capcom took the image from IGN's website while making the game's box art. To make up for their mistake, Capcom created an art redemption program. For a limited time, those who had a copy of the Wii version could fill out an application to be sent one of three high-resolution replacement covers for free. 
development and shipment of the covers took so long that Capcom eventually mailed all three of the covers to everyone who had applied to compensate for the delay. The program has since been shut down. Capcom would later hire Japanese studio Hexadrive to remaster Okami on the PlayStation 3. The port was technically very impressive and even renders the game at a 4K resolution. The game is downsampled from 4K to 1080p in real time, resulting in a very smooth and clear image. The Metal Slug series is known for a number of things. Its spectacular pixel artwork and dedication to 2D gameplay, its fast-paced run-and-gun action, and of course, its humor. Created by SNK, a company most notable for its incredible use of sprite work in their games, Metal Slug is perhaps one of the most well-recognized arcade run-and-gun titles in history. However, the series wasn't without its spin-offs, one of which would distance itself in almost every known way from all previous Metal Slug titles. Today, we'll be looking at Metal Slug for the PlayStation 2. Released as simply Metal Slug, though fan-dubbed Metal Slug 3D in order to differentiate it from the first entry in the core series, the game was created by SNK Playmore and published in 2006 exclusively in Japan. As previously mentioned, unlike all previous Metal Slug titles, this time the game takes shape in 3D, and the game's plot takes a much more central role. Players take control of Marco Rosi, Tama Roving, Fio Germa, and Eri Kasamoto as they attempt to thwart the plans of series antagonist General Morden. Having received word of a mid-sized detachment hidden in a mountain village a short distance from the government force's main base, Special Ops Unit Peregrine Falcons is sent in to investigate. The Peregrine Falcons HQ is raided by Morden's troops, made possible from an alliance between the Dictator and the multi-millionaire Ogma, the president of technology firm Ogma Enterprises. Our hero, Marco, must regroup with his team, defeat Morden, and uncover the truth behind Ogma's motives. Aside from the standard Metal Slug controls like jumping, shooting, and secondary weapons, many elements of Metal Slug are changed when the environment is put into 3D. As well as the player starting with four hit points, they must lock on to enemies in order to properly aim. The player can also swap between the various weapons and sub-weapons they find throughout the game. Though the pistol has unlimited ammo, the ammunition for all the other weapons is limited and is not replenished at the start of each level, and is instead carried over from the previous. Many of the series' staple weapons make reappearances, such as the shotgun, heavy machine gun, rocket launcher, enemy chaser, iron lizard, double machine gun, flame shot, the super grenade, which is essentially a rifle-mounted grenade launcher, and the laser gun, capable of shooting a powerful beam but with very limited ammo. There's even a unique weapon to the game, the Sniper Rifle, which, predictably, allows the player to scope. The player can also make use of a knife for close-quarters combat with Marco and Tama, and the Tonfa for Fio and Eri, allowing them to dodge and slide while locked onto an enemy. The player can also make use of grenades, including the standard frag grenade, molotovs, and smoke grenades, as well as stones and the monolith, with which the player throws out a beacon which calls down a massive stone tablet from the sky. This appears to be very similar to the attack used by the Monoai artifact in Metal Slug 3. As with other Metal Slug titles, within each level are prisoners of war who are often hidden from the player. When rescued, they will provide the player with materials, health, or ammunition. Likely in an attempt to shift the game away from its arcade roots and follow more closely to a traditional console release, each of the characters can be upgraded and customized. 
player performance is rated at the end of each level based on score and completion time, as well as a bonus from saving prisoners. Though if the player dies at any point in the level, they lose the bonus for any prisoners rescued prior to the death. For every S rank the player achieves throughout the game, the stats of the character are increased. There are four different stats, with each character specializing in one, that will be full from the very start of the game. Marco starts with full hit rate, determining the character's overall accuracy and range of their weapons. Theo is focused on power. As expected, this stat increases the amount of damage done by the player's attacks. Tama starts the game with full machine, which increases the mobility of their vehicles, and Eri begins with full pellet. Pellet determines the amount of splash damage from the player's attacks, increasing the weapon's radius the higher the stat. There are also a number of additional upgrades that could be purchased. When playing through the game, the player earns skill points to spend. The higher the difficulty, the more of these points the player will acquire. The four upgrades available increase the range of the lock-on ability, increase the speed at which the player can throw grenades, improve luck to decrease enemy accuracy, as well as one for simply boosting maximum HP. When playing through the game, the player collects materials which in turn can be used in the laboratory to create new customization options and upgrades for the titular metal slug. The core, the treads, the main cannon, the secondary weapon, the Vulcan, armor, and camouflage can all be changed. Each level is split up into multiple stages, with the final stage of each one ending in a boss fight. Several levels in the game change the perspective entirely, and take the form of an on-rail shooter instead. These have the player flying in a jet or underwater in a submarine. After completion of the game, an extra minigame can be unlocked which puts the player in control of a prisoner of war. They are unable to attack, and must escape from a compound whilst not being spotted by the enemy. The game was first unveiled at the Tokyo Game Show in 2004, being announced without a definite title having been decided. At E3 the following year, SNK announced that the game would be called Metal Slug Evolution, though the Evolution subtitle was later dropped. Metal Slug's first venture into 3D would, unsurprisingly, require additional staff to manage, with many of the original artists for the series having only worked exclusively in 2D. That said, Metal Slug 3D was created by a team without any of the series' original developers. The choice of moving the series into 3D was made by then-SNK Director of Games and later SNK Playmore President, Soichiro Hosea, as he believed that for a game publisher to survive, they must move into 3D development. He said, as a games developer, we won't be able to survive without 3D titles. We also understand that the US and European markets, respectively their gamers, want 3D titles. Titles need not only be directed towards the world market, but also have to develop towards 3D, as games publishers won't be able to survive otherwise. This led to the creation of King of Fighters Maximum Impact, the first of SNK's 3D titles. It seemed like only a natural progression for Metal Slug to make a similar move, being one of the more popular series for Western audiences, and Hosea's statement that US and European markets prefer 3D titles. Rumors have often spread that the game wasn't always intended to be exclusively released in Japan. The game has full English voice acting. Major! Major Rossi! It's me! And many of the game's menus are already written in English. There were allegedly plans for a North American release under the name Metal Slug 2006, as well that it would be published in Europe as Metal Slug 3D by Ignition Entertainment, the publisher of many Metal Slug titles. 
Ultimately, it's likely that SNK decided against the decision to release the game internationally after the title received extensive criticism before it had even been released in Japan. Many fans of the series expressed their distaste for the title online, even with just the very idea of Metal Slug being made in 3D. With that said, Famitsu actually reviewed the game positively, giving it a solid flush of sevens after it had been released, and many comments online said that it wasn't as bad as they had initially expected following pre-release speculation. Being released in 2006, the PlayStation 2 was beginning to make way for the soon-to-be-released PlayStation 3. This was factored into the decision, as when asked what the fate of the game was for the West, Hosoya had stated, Metal Slug 3D though, I can tell you, will only be released in Japan. We're doing this as it will be a PS2 title. Regarding the US-European market, we want to re-release Metal Slug 3D on next-generation consoles. As Metal Slug 3D is a strategically important title for the US-European market, we don't want to release a half-finished product. King of Fighters Maximum Impact and Metal Slug 3D are two of our main pillars with which we want to tailor to their wishes the 3D. The game was released as a way to celebrate Metal Slug's 10th anniversary, though because of the poor reception, the company put together and released Metal Slug Anthology internationally instead, a compilation containing Metal Slug 1 through 6 and Metal Slug X. Capcom, Namco, two of the biggest names in video game development, both have been around since the golden era of arcade games. Known for creating games where their characters cross over, the two companies have a history of not only cooperation, but also competition. The first title in which both teams joined forces never made it to the West. Featuring a huge number of characters from both companies, that game is Namco Cross Capcom. Developed by Monolith Soft, a subsidiary of Namco at the time, and published in 2005 for the PlayStation 2, Namco Cross Capcom is a different take on the strategy RPG genre. To add in mechanics that both companies are known for, the game features a fighting side to it. Attacking enemies requires moving a unit into a position where they can reach the enemy. You are then able to initiate a fighting style attack phase. This allows players to attack the enemy with a variety of different moves by using the directional and circle buttons. You're given a limited number of attacks during this phase, and must attempt to do as much damage as possible. Different attacks are stronger against some enemies compared to others. This is demonstrated through a menu prior to attacking the enemy that will tell you their weak points. The game rewards clever use of attacks to combo and air juggle, providing you with bonuses like additional attacks, stat boosts, and damage modifiers. Performing all five different attacks during a battle will restore some of the unit's HP or MP too. By building up enough attacks and filling a power gauge for your character, it's also possible to perform a strong special attack. Some units are able to perform special moves when two characters have an affinity for each other. For example, while some units move around as a pair, some are standalone characters that can be moved around on their own. Ryu and Ken are standalone units, but if both are close enough together, they'll be able to team up for an attack that delivers even greater damage. When it comes to an enemy unit attacking you, there are a few different defensive options. The normal option requires you to counter enemy moves by pressing directional buttons as they appear on screen. Successfully doing this will reward you with bonus AP, and will make your character's turn come quicker. You can even use some AP to absorb a portion of the damage dealt. There's also an option which will use up some of the character's special attack gauge in order to simply skip the fight and take the damage instead. Some characters have their own moves too, allowing them to counter attacks by using up some of the points from the power gauge. As you can see, the game is very basic, but the main appeal of the title comes out of seeing beloved characters from your favorite series and how they'll crop up. Characters will know of each other, and common elements from each franchise will overlap, 
to create a fully connected universe. This is done through dialogue, visual references, and elements you might not expect. This encourages players to explore character affinities and discover their multiple assault attacks. The game's plot follows the characters of Reiji Arisu and Zhao Mu in the year 20XX. The duo were tasked to investigate spiritual disturbances for a special underground organization called Shinra. During the investigation, they discover quakes that are causing rifts to open between worlds, a disturbance that occurred 10 years prior. These quakes cause several different worlds to connect and transport people between them. Heroes from all walks of gaming life are bundled together in your party, some from the biggest names in gaming and some from the smallest. The same is said for the villains of these games too, who are working cooperatively against you. A common complaint from reviewers was that fights became tedious after a few hours of playing and can distract from the plot. Maps can often take over half an hour to complete, and there are a total of 50 throughout the game. Regarding how the game came into creation, Namco executive Yoichi Halaguchi stated prior to the game's release, Monolith Soft came to us saying that they wanted to make a game that featured characters from Namco. Our company is celebrating its 50th anniversary in June, so we were thinking that it would be great to bring back our characters from the past. The game had been a concept for two years until Namco came up with the idea of bringing in characters from another company. When thinking of developers that they could work with, the only company Namco could think of with enough unique characters to match their own was Capcom. Keiji Inafune, who worked on the Onimusha and Mega Man Legends series for Capcom at the time, was extremely excited to see the game come to life. He stated, If it were a few years back, it would have been unthinkable to join hands with another rival company in the industry. But companies nowadays are more cooperative, and I think that it's a good thing for the video game industry. I hope that we can collaborate together with Namco again in the future. Namco Cross Capcom led to several titles between both companies being released internationally. After this title came Cross Edge, an RPG released on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 in 2008. The game was a collaboration between Namco, Capcom, Nipponichi, and Gust. The two companies decided to then step away from RPGs and went for a genre they're both well known for, a fighting game that crossed over Street Fighter and Tekken. Following that was the 3DS RPG Project Cross Zone, where not only are Namco and Capcom characters fighting together, but Sega is thrown into the mix too. With the sequel Project Cross Zone 2 being released, we also saw the introduction of Krom and Lucina from Fire Emblem Awakening joining the cast of playable characters, as well as Metal Face from Xenoblade Chronicles appearing as a rival. This meant that the game contained characters from not only Namco and Capcom, but Sega and Nintendo as well. We were unable to find an official statement on Namco Cross Capcom's lack of localization. Online sources cite different reasons, and we weren't able to confirm any of these. Some say that there were disputes between Namco and Capcom about who would be given the right to publish the game in the Western markets. Others believe that Namco didn't want to translate and publish the title outside of Japan because of the obscurity of many of the characters that appear within the game. A lot of the characters come from some very obscure titles that were also Japan exclusive. However, the characters of Reiji and Xiaomu did prove popular enough with Namco for them to be reused in later games. A fan translation patch was created by the group Transgen. It translates a vast majority of the game into English, enough to push through the game's story and to get a handle of the battle system. Many believe the translation demonstrates the ability and determination of fans. While it might not be a perfect translation and has a few minor spelling mistakes slipping in, it is still an admirable effort and one that should be seen as an inspiration. There's certainly a large number of absurd or bizarre games to come from the minds of Japanese game developers, and it seems to us that many of those creations saw prevalence with the release of Sony's PlayStation 2. 
From the likes of Katamari Damacy's hectic, colourful imaginings, to a game allowing us to experience life as Mr. Mosquito, the console seemed to be open doors to absurdist humour and imaginative gameplay mechanics. Today, we'll be looking at two games by the same developer, both left in Japan and both published by Sony themselves. The development studio Alveon had somewhat humble beginnings, with little fanfare for their first few releases. After the release of their two PS2 titles, the companies would work on games such as Malicious, Siren Blood Curse, and Ape Escape Academy. The two games we'll be looking at for this episode will be Poiny's Poin and Chain Dive, starting with Poiny. Poiny's Poin was released in 2002, putting the player into the role of Poiny, a strange creature who lives in a lively place known as Jellytown. Poiny manages to become separated from his mother when he meets a young girl by the name of Lilin-chan. Lilin tells Poiny that she will help him find his way home, but instead asks a favour of him, to use the various orbs around Jellytown, known as Poin, to solve a series of strange incidents which are occurring, in order to return the town to its once peaceful state. Lilin provides Poiny with a living Poin simply referred to as Poin, a toxic-tongued duck-like creature who protrudes from Poiny's backside. Poiny is special and one of the few able to make use of points because, as Lilin describes it, Points can only be used by the pure and, uh, stupid at heart. Poiny is pit against a vindictive young girl called Lolo who controls an army of cat-like creatures called Hellnyaos. These creatures are able to create toxic points, which corrupt whomever they are used upon, causing them to become erratically confused and violent. Poiny's Poin plays like many typical 3D platformers, with the player navigating large areas and solving puzzles. Most puzzles involve the use of points to control NPCs' emotions. By grabbing a Poin, the player is able to throw it at any living creature and alter its state of mind. Blue points will cause the target to be overwrought with sadness. Red points will invoke anger, and yellow points will make characters happy. While these different colours can be used as they come, should the player need to solve a puzzle with a colour not present, they may be able to combine two different points to create the remaining third colour. Combining two points of the same colour will simply cause them to disappear. Eventually, a character's emotions will resolve themselves, or the player can use a point of the same colour as their emotion to erase the effect. This is how the effects of the toxic points can be reversed. Points also serve other functions beside their mood-altering capabilities, such as being used as platforms. Poiny is also able to grab points and use them to float over large distances. By manipulating the emotions of various characters in the world, Poiny is able to solve a variety of puzzles, such as causing characters to become angry enough to damage their surroundings, opening new paths. A variety of creatures inhabit the world of Jellytown, including living eclairs. By grabbing these creatures, it's possible to recover health. There are also purple eclairs, which instead will reduce Poiny's health, and golden eclairs, which are hidden and when eaten will increase the player's maximum health. There are also large eclairs, which fully restore Poiny's health without being eaten. Poiny's main goal is to free various people around town from the effects of the poisonous Poins, and by helping them, they will help Poiny on his journey to reunite with his mother. Not much has been written about the game online, or information is just generally quite scarce, but an interesting point from our playthroughs is how it asks the player's age at the beginning of the game. Having played through twice at two different ages, we couldn't discern any differences. Poiny's Point may have never released in any English territories, but it does contain not just fully English text translation, but also has complete English voice acting alongside Japanese. Cool. 
over tonight and let's boogie down and party! The game did allegedly receive a release in China, with English being used as the primary language of the game in the region. The game's voice acting may be familiar to an English-speaking audience. The game's English voice acting was actually supervised by Christian Storms, the supervisor for the first three seasons of South Park's Japanese dub. Most notably, many have pointed out the similarities between the voice of Poiny's Duck character and Eric Cartman from South Park. Hey Green, do you like it, I made you eat your parents. Christian Storms has also worked in Japan for a long time, assisting with many Japan-related TV shows, as well as subtitling over 70 Japanese feature films into English. One character in the game, a dazzling hero from TV, is named Bon Jovi. As you may have guessed, this is an obvious reference to the famed American rock group Bon Jovi. Poiny also has a habit of celebrating by claiming that you can't a popular phrase coined by MC Hammer with his hit song you can't touch this. Next up, a move into a more mature realm of PlayStation 2 games, Chain Dive. Chain Dive was released in 2003, putting the player in the role of Shark, a mysterious man with an almighty biomechanical suit. He fights to protect the people and princesses living on the planet Elm after menacing invaders do what they do best and start invading. Shark appears just as the planet is on the brink of collapse. He is aided by his arsenal, a sword called the Unbreakable and a grappling hook called a Plasma Chain. The game plays across a 2D axis while being rendered in 3D. The player's main capabilities lie in being able to swing from various green orbs found throughout stages, allowing them to effectively slingshot themselves, picking up momentum and propelling at high speeds across environments assisted by their double jump. The player can also hang from points and swing around them. Most stages have an abundance of orbs that can be latched onto, however, at times this proves to be a part of the game's main challenge. Orbs can be placed in an inconsistent manner, leaving the player falling in hopes of a grapple point to get back into the fast-paced aerial assault, or having to utilize frozen foes in order to ascend higher. Unbreakable isn't actually able to directly damage enemies, instead it will freeze the enemy into a giant block of ice, turning them into their own grapple point. By swinging through the enemy, they will be defeated. Some enemies require multiple hits or higher speeds in order to destroy them. By swinging through multiple enemies in quick succession, the player can build up a combo score in order to recover health, with better performances recovering more. The player is able to run out of stamina on their main attack, however. When the gauge is fully depleted, they are unable to freeze enemies with the Unbreakable and will have to wait for a cooldown period. Shark can also make use of a special attack, which freezes all enemies on screen. All enemies will remain frozen until the combo is broken. This attack can be risky, however, as the player must sacrifice a significant portion of their health to activate it. Shark can also save various damsels by picking them up and carrying them to safety, though while they are being carried, the player is unable to attack and must place them down before engaging enemies. Levels have different goals rather than sticking to the same task throughout. These can range from navigating to the end of a stage like a typical platformer, protecting NPCs in escort missions, and even runner stages. There are also large boss battles throughout the game. Each stage ends with a rating for the player based on enemy, damage, time, combo, and rescue when applicable. Each of the relatively short stages is bookended with very long, dialogue-heavy, story-based cutscenes. Environments might appear fairly empty by many other PlayStation 2 game standards, but this was an intentional choice by the developer to ensure that the title runs at a solid 60 frames per second throughout, with varying degrees of success. 
As much of the game relies on its fast-paced movement, the game was also visually optimized for motion. The environments that the player is put through also range dramatically in presentation, from dark derelict cities to floating ruins in blue skies. While the game is relatively short, with the player being able to reach the end within just a few hours, there are two additional modes that are unlocked after completion, Time Trials and Combo Trials. Alvian aren't particularly well known for their self-headed projects, having only created a small handful of their own games. This isn't to say that Alvian doesn't have a strong connection to the industry. The company has been contracted on a number of high-profile games as a development support team for several major studios, including Platinum Games, Sony, and Nintendo. Seeing the fast-paced action of Chaindive, it's almost no wonder that Alvian would later be tasked with helping Platinum Games create Bayonetta and Metal Gear Rising Revengeance. With regards to Poiny's Point, however, Sony may have been reluctant to publish the game anywhere but Japan simply because of the game's content. People online liken the tone of the game's dialogue to a more friendly Conker's Bad Fur Day. Within the first 10 minutes of the game, we are already introduced to a flirtatious duck who refers to the young protagonist as a wet ass. The contrasting tones would have probably been contentious in a Western market. Topping that, the game was reviewed as a fairly mixed bag, many praising the title's interesting premise of manipulating emotions to solve puzzles, but finding issue with its short playtime and general unpolished nature. For Chaindive, while the game was praised and received a lot of recognition through word of mouth, it was ultimately similar to Poiny's Point in its short playtime. While these titles may be fun to revisit in today's age, at the time, Sony had a considerable number of games on the platform which had larger scopes than we had ever seen before. Both games could have stood out had they appeared on earlier hardware, mainly concentrating on their mechanics over length, but with the PlayStation 2's significant boost in disk storage space, expectations were higher. Did you also know that Pokemon Yellow's Safari Zone has a small secret not found in any other version of Gen 1? Or that Splatoon has a secret easter egg referencing Tupac and Biggie Smalls? Click the video on screen for an entire hour of Nintendo facts just like these. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.